Good morning. So we are going to read from 1 Colossians uh, 3 through 14, and it looks like the screen is cooperating, so, or you can follow along, of course, there's uh, Bibles in the pews. Please uh, join us by standing, thank you. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, a fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we look together at Colossians this morning. And uh, let's pray and commit this time to God. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. We pray that we this morning would be a people who listen, uh, not just with ears to gain knowledge and information, Lord, but with hearts that are ready to be changed by your grace, by the power of your spirit. And so be with us, guide us, and fill our hearts with you. In Jesus' name, amen. When the first European settlers arrived in Massachusetts, settling down uh, in what is now Plymouth, they brought with them things like clothing and arms and armor and household goods, tools, bedding, some small furniture, what whatever they thought that they would need to start their new lives as long as it fit on the Mayflower. And among their goods that they brought with them uh, from England were seeds. Seeds in order to grow food in their new land. But not only were the pilgrims new to farming, uh, they were in new territory. They didn't understand the seasonal cycles of this new place. Uh, They didn't really know what tools would be necessary uh, for the job, and they did not know the land. Uh, Unlike the soil in southern England, which is deep, nutrient-rich, loamy, easy-to-hand-till, the soil in coastal Massachusetts is shallow, sandy, and stony, and making it really hard to work by hand. And so it wasn't their imported seeds that produced the first harvest that we now commemorate every year with Thanksgiving. It was the native crops that the Native Americans taught them 
how to plant and cultivate the corn, the beans, the squash. Not because crops like wheat that they brought with them can't grow here. That wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't the seeds. In fact, during the 19th century, New England was known as the breadbasket of America. This was the the heartland of wheat production. The problem was that they just didn't understand their new environment and the unique challenges of growing things like wheat in this specific place. For instance, it takes a lot of work simply just to find a field in order to grow wheat. Uh, The default here is forest, not the Great Plains. Uh, So you have to clear trees and remove stones first. You know, as you drive around the countryside in New England, all of these beautiful stone walls, those all came from farmers clearing fields in order to be able to plant crops. Uh, And then you have to learn the unique seasonal pattern for the area, when to plant. If you plant too soon, when it's still too wet, your seeds are going to rot. They're going to decay instead of grow. So when to plant, when to cultivate, when to harvest, and and what to do in the crazy stormy weather that you sometimes get in New England. So the problem's not with the seeds. You can actually grow wheat on every continent on this earth, except for Antarctica. But how you grow it will look different from place to place because of where you are. And the same can be said of gospel ministry in New England. The gospel will grow on every continent on earth, including Antarctica. Wherever there are people, the gospel of Jesus is powerful to change lives. As Paul describes in Colossians 1, the gospel which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world bearing fruit and growing. But what the gospel, what gospel growth looks like will differ from place to place. So if an area is already saturated with the witness of the church, such that if you just mention the name Jesus to anybody on the street, they know who you're talking about and what he did simply by nature of the influence of Christianity, that looks different than if you go to an area that's never even heard the name of Jesus or or maybe doesn't even have the Bible in their own language, ministry's going to look different. In one area, you can freely scatter seed in relatively open fields, uh, ready for planting. In another area, you're chopping down trees and you're clearing stones in order to get ready for the field, and you might just start with a little corner garden. So the gospel will grow in, in both places, but it will look different how you grow it. But the problem's not with the gospel. It's not with the seed. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the problem's not with the message. But gospel growth will look different in one place compared to another based on the conditions that we find ourselves in, who we are, where we are, and what time it is. And so it can be helpful to understand those factors when we think about our unique ministry in the place God has called us and sent us to serve. 
Back in 2011, we adopted a vision as a church. Uh, We printed every week inside your worship folder in the corner right above the note space uh, that says our vision is to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. We want the good news of Jesus to be central to everything we are and everything we do. We want it to shape us as a community, as a family in relationships, and we want that to bear fruit uh, in how we live in this place as a people sent for God's kingdom. Uh, it's a good vision. It's a biblical vision. But what we've realized recently is that vision, while true to Scripture, doesn't take into account the precise mission field God has placed us in and called us to. It's, it's rather generic. And so what does it look like for this particular people in this specific place, at this precise time, to live out that vision. Uh, It's for that reason that you received the letter a few weeks ago and that we're talking about this desire to refocus our vision as a church. We want to get more specific. We want to hear from God what what should this look like for this unique congregation um, to refocus that vision with greater clarity and specificity for the months and years ahead. Uh, again, the goal is not to start from scratch, but to, but to take that vision and, and build on it, discerning how to apply it more specifically. Now, again, what does it look like practically for us, this particular people, in this specific place, at this unique time in history, to be faithful to minister the gospel of Jesus? Some of the questions that we're hoping to discern together. Screen's working. It's a good thing. Uh, are there specific goals that God wants us to trust him to accomplish in the months and years ahead? Are there some specific goals? What pathways need to be in place for that to happen? How do our current ministries or new ministries fit into those pathways and, and uh, fit together as a coherent strategy? What are the staffing implications for applying this vision moving forward? Uh, how do we nurture the vitality that we currently see and, and cultivate that? And so these are some of the questions that together as a congregation we're going to be praying and talking about in the next several weeks. Uh, at home groups, at Bible studies, um, the elders are going to have a couple meetings. You can come visit with us. Uh, we'll be talking with the staff and, of course, the, the congregational meeting next week with the potluck, cold, crockpot. Just making sure. All right. But what I want to do this morning, what I want to do this morning, as we kind of start this special series, it's about a five-week series through Colossians. We're not going to exhaust this book, uh, but I hope it's going to be a guide for us as we think about these things And what I want to do as we start it is to spend some time thinking out loud a little bit about the unique conditions for gospel ministry right here. So not just in New England, but in the Metro West specifically. Factors about our context that might shape how we answer some of those questions. And then I want to convince you of what Paul sought to convince the Colossians, that regardless of how we answer those questions, it is the gospel of Jesus itself that bears fruit and grows his church in any environment. 
by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. And so, what about our unique context? What is unique about being a church in the Metro West in 2017? Uh, There are three questions I want us to consider as we think about ministering the gospel here. Who are we? Where are we? And what time is it? Who are we? Where are we? And what time is it? And when Uh, You know, to come back to the farming analogy and asking who we are, we're thinking about our experience and our resources. Who are we? How has God gifted us right now? Um, And then in asking where are we, we're seeking to understand the contours of the field that we're in, the unique obstacles and opportunities of this specific area. And then what time it is, we want to know the season we're in and the weather. So what's happening in the world around us right now as we seek to serve the Lord that affects the way we might plant or cultivate or harvest. So so first question is, who are we? Who are we? God has called this particular people who gather as Westgate Church to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. So, so who are are we? How has he gifted us? What are our strengths and weaknesses? Now, we can and should answer that question theologically first. We are a church. We are a local expression of Christ's one universal church. We're not a social club. We're not a, uh, any number of different kinds of gatherings. We are a church. In the language of Colossians 1, we are a people who have been qualified by the Father on the basis of what Christ has done for us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, a people who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that's the most important thing about us. Uh, Not where we live, not what we've done, not what we have the potential to do, but who we are in Christ, our identity in him. That's the most important thing about us. But I do want us to think about that question, not just theologically, but demographically as well. Who are we uniquely as Westgate Church? Because gospel ministry is going to look different for Westgate than it will, say, for Park Street Church in downtown Boston or for Trinitarian in Wayland, or Milestone in Natick, or First Baptist in Sudbury. It's going to look somewhat unique because of who we are. So, so first, we're a multi-generational congregation. That's one of the important factors of who we are. There's no one age group or season of life that dominates the makeup of Westgate Church. And you could see that just by looking around, and it's even more evident before all the kids go downstairs. Uh, some congregations, some churches will skew to one age group specifically. They might skew young or skew old. Uh, we have a lot more diversity, if you will, in our age spread here. We're made up of college students and young adults and middle-aged and seniors, among whom some are married, some are single, some are divorced, some are widowed. And among the, the children in the church, some of them go to public school, some private school, some homeschool. So there's not one season of life that dominates the makeup of this congregation. And that factor is going to affect 
how we go about ministry here. So, you know, the question we want to ask is, what difference should that make? What, you know, how does who we are shape that? For instance, you know, as a multi-generational church, we're probably not going to lean in to ministering to one specific life stage. You know, some churches will pick that. We're going to be a church for young families, and that's, or we're going to be a church for young singles or young professionals. We're probably not going to lean or prioritize a single life stage because we're not a single life stage church. So who we are shapes the way we might approach ministry. Second, we're very much a regional congregation. Uh, you know, it would be interesting to, to take a poll on how many different towns we all live in right here in this room. In fact, if everybody who calls Westgate home were here this morning, uh, it, the answer would be 28. 28 different towns and not a lot of people. That's a pretty regionally spread out congregation. That's unique. Uh, and it's both a unique challenge and a unique opportunity. It's a challenge when we want to try and spend time together outside of Sunday morning. Sometimes we have to drive a long ways to hang out with each other. Uh, it's a challenge when we try and figure out who we're specifically reaching with the gospel. You know, if, if you do it by the towns we live in, that's like a 40 mile by 30 mile spread. It's kind of a big target. Um, so there are challenges that come with being a, a, a regional congregation, but there are also opportunities that come with it. Uh, it's an opportunity to take the gospel into more towns and more communities, some of which, some of the towns we live in, do not have a single gospel preaching church in them. So there's a unique opportunity. So we're multi-generational, we're regional. Um, we also need to understand and take an inventory of our relative strengths and weaknesses. How has God equipped us uniquely, and, and how, what are some ways we still need to grow in and shore up? Uh, so in terms of strengths, uh, you know, there any number of ways we could we could describe these. But among our strengths, I would include our music ministry. I think we have some very gifted and talented people who serve the Lord in music, not least Drew, our, our director. That's a strength to this church. I think our youth ministry is also a strength. We're seeing that grow under Travis's leadership as he works together with Doran and Christina. We're a very generous church. That's a strength. Uh, people are very generous in this congregation to each other, to the Lord's work. And they're generous not just with money, but with time. A lot of you spend a lot of time serving the Lord in different ways, um, both here and, and outside of the church. We have gifted and godly elders. I love my elder team. It is a joy to work with those men. We have gifted and godly deacons who spend a lot of time serving all of you. And a missions board who keeps our, our hearts focused not just here, but on the global field God has given us. Um, we have good leaders in our congregation that are a blessing. We have a gifted staff. Um, we are blessed with the staff that we've been given. Pastor Bruce brings so much wisdom and skill and compassion and insight to so many of the ministries. Um, we value God's word as a church. That's a big strength. We're not fighting together over the essentials of the faith. That's not the battle that's in front of us right now. That's a blessing. We have settled convictions on Scripture and a high view of Scripture. 
a commitment to teaching the Bible at every level of ministry, um, from children uh, on through adulthood, um, a commitment to teaching the Bible from the pulpit, the kind of sermons where the main point of the sermon ought to be the main point of the passage in front of us. Um, so those are strengths. We value reconciled relationships here. Uh, and that's something we had to learn the hard way historically. We had to learn the hard way of saying, I'm sorry, I, mis- I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And, and doing the hard work of reconciliation, that's become a value in this congregation. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we like each other. We actually like hanging out with each other. It, which sounds silly to say, but it's not true of every church congregation. That's a gift and a blessing that Jesus is at work in this congregation in such a way we actually like and love one another. So there's a lot to be thankful for. And, and then the question is not to like pat ourselves on the back, oh, we've got all these great things. How do those strengths help us think about our unique contribution to the gospel here? That's the point in asking those. You know, you don't, you, a farmer might take an inventory of his, of his equipment and barn just to feel good about all the stuff he owns. That's not the goal. You take an inventory so you know what you've got to use. And that, that's the goal in thinking about our strengths here. And we also need to take an honest inventory of our weaknesses, though, too. We're very busy people. That could be a strong weakness. Uh, we don't always have time to invest in the kingdom. We're scattered throughout the region. Again, we mentioned that already. That can be a challenge. We lack clear pathways for life and ministry in the church. In other words, it's not always easy to know how to get involved or how to serve or how to grow. That, those questions, like if someone asks you, so how does somebody get involved in leadership at Westgate? Most of us couldn't answer that question because we don't have a very clear pathway for leadership development or for discipleship. Those are some weaknesses that we need to shore up. Not to mention the fact that we're all still sinners in need of grace. There's a weakness. There's a reality. And that list could be a lot longer. But that's who we are right now as Westgate Church. That's whom God has called and placed into this mission field around us. And those are things we want to be aware of as we ask, what are some of the specific, unique ways that we could put our vision into practice in the months and years ahead? So who are we? The second question, where are we? Where are we? What are the contours of this field God has placed us in? The unique features of our context here in the Metro West. Uh, In understanding the field that's before us, I think it's helpful to think of it in terms of obstacles and opportunities. So what obstacles do we have to be mindful of as we serve the Lord or even deal directly with as we want to make disciples for Christ? What, what trees need to be cleared? What rocks need to be removed so that the field is, is ready for planting? And then what opportunities lie beyond that? In terms of obstacles, uh, New England is full of them. There is no shortage of stones in the field uh, today. There are so many things that compete for our identity or for our allegiance or our affection for God. You know, for instance, uh, in the Metro West suburbs, we celebrate education. 
We pick which town and neighborhood we live in based on the school system. Education's a big deal. Uh, We celebrate affluence, money and possessions, power and influence, accomplishment and achievement, whether in terms of, of business or education or scientific ingenuity or artistic expression. And all of those are good things. But sometimes they become so central that we orient our lives around those good things instead of God. And then we overload our lives trying to chase them. Uh, We often overload the lives of our kids as well in pursuit of these identity-shaping dreams. Busyness in the Metro West is a badge of honor. If you're not busy, you must not be very important. And if your kids aren't really busy, you're probably failing them as a parent and they're, you know, not going to succeed. Uh, And and so we buy into these kinds of things. These are some of the trees, the rocks, the boulders that get in the way of seeing and savoring Jesus in our unique area. In the language of, of Tim Keller, they're often good things that become bad things because we make them ultimate things. They become substitutes for God, alternative gods, false idols, demanding our allegiance and our worship along with the necessary sacrifices that come of our time and our money and our kids and all these things. And so, those are some of the rocks in in the field. How do we take the gospel to address those things, those unique challenges to this area? How, How does that shape our specific ministry? We want to wrestle with that question. Um, But beyond those obstacles, there's also a unique gospel opportunity. Uh, In recent years, New England has often been described as uh, the new, America's new mission frontier. And that's still true today. Uh, It's hard to estimate uh, precisely, but by my count, of the 28 towns that we all live in across the Metro West, four of those towns have no gospel preaching churches. So a church that believes the Bible and preaches that Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. There are four of those towns that we live in that have zero gospel preaching churches. Five of those towns have only one, serving a collective population of 85,000. So five churches for 85,000 people. Another nine towns have three or less gospel preaching churches each, serving a total of 230,000 people. So of the 730,000 people that live in the 28 towns that we come from in the Metro West, there are only 71 gospel preaching churches by my rough estimate. That is one church for every 10,000 plus people. That is a gospel opportunity. That, that's unacceptable. That's not just an opportunity. That's a mandate to bring the gospel into these areas. So how does that affect the way we think about our role, our mission here as a congregation? How does that affect the way we staff our ministries or the way we allocate our budget? We need to think and pray about those things given the unique opportunity of this region. So who are we? Where are we finally? What time is it? What season are we in and what is the weather doing? Now, by season, 
What I mean by that analogy is where are we at in salvation history? What, is, what time is it in the grand scheme of God's great saving work? That's a theological question. But it's crucial for understanding our emphasis and our urgency in ministry. So we're no longer under the law of Moses, for instance. We're not waiting for the Messiah anymore. Jesus Christ has come and he has finished his work on the cross and the resurrection. But he has not yet returned. We're still waiting for that. And so we live between the first and second comings of Christ. We live between the cross and the new creation. Which means that we still live in a fallen world. Stained by sin, where things don't always work the way that they're supposed to. But that the hope of the gospel has already broken through the surface. And that Christ has sent us into the world with that message of hope. So in other words, it's farming season. That's the season we live in. It's time to get into the fields to sow the seed of God's word, to water it with prayer, to cultivate it with love for our neighbors in anticipation of the Lord's harvest. Or to change the metaphor, this is wartime, not peacetime. You live differently during wartime. When America was at war uh, with the Axis forces in World War II, people lived differently. They made sacrifices for the cause. They rationed food. They took on manufacturing jobs. They purchased war bonds. In peacetime, you don't think about those kinds of things. You, You tend to think about yourself. A lot of Christians live as though this is peacetime, as though the hard work of the harvest is over and we can Now settle in for a quiet winter. But Jesus sends us into the fields. This is farming season. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So this is farming season. And yet, while we labor together for the Lord, we do want to be mindful of the weather around us. And by that, I mean uh, what kind of what's happening in the world around us right now that, again, might affect our specific application of gospel ministry, particularly here in the Metro West. Uh, For instance, we are dealing with a season of historic spiritual drought. This region was founded by the Puritans and, and known for the first and the second great awakenings. It was you know, the legacy of people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, this rich spiritual heritage. And yet for the last 150 years, it's been in a spiritual drought where God and Christ have been pushed to the margin uh, to the point that we actually have some of the least religious states in the country, period. And so that's a factor. Things grow a little bit slower coming out of a drought. I think we see that in New England. Um, But that means there's also urgency to cultivate and get things going again, to pray for God to do that work. So so that's one of the uh, weather factors, if you will. But in recent years, we've also seen some refreshing showers, some Signs of life that God is not done with this area. 
we've seen what's been described by those outside looking on as a, quote, quiet revival in New England, especially among immigrant churches, but also among English-speaking ones. In the last decade, in the last 10 years, there are well over 40 new gospel-preaching churches in the Boston metro area. God is at work. He's doing things. What does it look like for us to be part of that? And then, moreover, there are also encouraging signs in the culture. For instance, there is a spirit of activism and compassion and justice that has captured the heart of young, the hearts of young people today. That's a good thing. People want to see the world changed for the better. Now, sometimes the answers to what a better life looks like aren't actually healthy or better, but there is a desire, a longing captured by our young people, millennial generation especially, that wants to see change happen. They want to see wrongs in this world made right. And that is a longing that's ultimately fulfilled by the gospel. So how do we come alongside that that eagerness, that longing, affirming what is good, challenging what needs to be challenged, but ultimately showing how the gospel tells an even better story, how the work of Christ answers those longings and undoes what is wrong in a way that nothing else in this world actually can. That's actually the topic of the Life on Mission conference in a few weeks, that specific topic. So, So there's some encouraging, refreshing showers. There are also some brooding horizons. There are challenges that are looming uh, that pose potential new threats. The erosion of religious liberty, for instance. Um, And then some of those horizons have already broken into raging storms that that we live with. Spikes in racism around the country. The refugee crisis that we're in the middle of. The culture of death gaining ground, not only in terms of abortion, but now the, the, uh, the pushing forward of euthanasia and assisted suicide in multiple states. The sexual and gender identity revolution. The political chaos that fills our news feeds. There are a lot of storms raging. And there are a few uh, blights that have been around for a long time that don't seem to be going away. Things like poverty, human trafficking. So there are a lot of these are the storms that fill our news feeds. These are the, this is what's going on right now in the world God has sent us into. So the question again becomes, not how do we solve all those problems, but what among those is God asking us to bring the gospel to bear on as a community? We need to understand the weather. So there's lots of questions. You'll notice I have brought up, I don't know, 15, 20 questions and not a single answer this morning. There are lots of questions uh, that we need to be asking and prayerfully discussing about what is our unique calling in this, as this people and this place at this time with this unchanging, all-sufficient gospel message. What are the pathways that need to be in place for that to happen? But while the challenges are significant, hope is strong The harvest is white because the gospel is sufficient. 
It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And if we're to be faithful and effective in our call, whatever shape that begins to take, we must be convinced of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ for that labor. And that's the what I want to land on this morning. That's why we're spending time in Colossians the next several weeks, because that's the main thing Paul wants to convince us of. Paul's aim in this book is to see fruit. He wants to see the gospel bear fruit. In more and more people coming to know Christ, it's been bearing fruit among the church in Colossae and and throughout the world, and he wants to see still others come to know Christ, that fruit of conversion. He prays or asks them to pray in chapter 4 that that they would pray for him that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul has a desire to see the gospel bear fruit in conversion and more and more knowing Christ. But he also wants to see the gospel bear fruit in changed lives. Not just entering into relationship with Jesus, but growing in that. Growing in personal holiness, in love. He summarizes it in his prayer in, in chapter 1, 10 through 12. That the people of God in Christ would walk in steadfast maturity. That their lives would bring honor and pleasure to God, specifically in terms of fruitful works and growing knowledge of God, joyful dependence on his strength, constant thankfulness. That's Paul's aim. He wants the church, he wants the gospel to bear fruit. He wants to see steadfast maturity in this church's life. But the singular source of that fruit, the faith and steadfast maturity, the one place that that comes from is the gospel of Christ. Look at how he grounds his prayer in verses 10 through 12 in a specific request in verse 9. That they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's his prayer. So that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So, so in other words, what enables the faithful walk of verses 10 through 12 is the knowledge of God's will in verse 9. I want them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they can walk in this faithful life. And and so knowing God's will is the pivot point for, for a fruitful church. But what does he mean by God's will? Like when we talk about God's will, we almost immediately think of God's individual will for my personal life. What does God want me to do with my career or my, you know, whatever? That's not what Paul means by the word will here. Um, Colossians has very little to say to that individualistic question. He's talking about knowing God's overarching will, his grand design and plan for history. As he puts it in Ephesians, the the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, he wants us to know that which centers on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He wants us to be utterly convinced that all that God is doing to to bring reconciliation and redemption to this world is centered on his son, Jesus. Know that will, the will of God that he's accomplishing through Christ in order to bear fruit for him. That's going to be his main point throughout the book. And we're going to see that uh, in the weeks ahead, especially next week when we look at um, uh, 
the heart of gospel ministry in chapter 1, 15 through 23, where he really drills down and says, here's what I mean by God's grand will. And we're going to talk about the threats to gospel ministry as well, the challenges that, that we face, uh, the character of gospel ministry and the witness of it. But it's the gospel, it's the, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. That's our pivot foot. That's what makes the difference. Uh, the way we've tried to reflect that, if you look at the banners or the graphic on the front of your worship folder, it's the cross that changes hearts and then sends us out on mission. The pivot put, the centerpiece, is the finished work of Christ. And Paul wants us to be utterly invested in that, to know that however we answer all of these questions about what God wants us to do, that it is that Jesus is enough for that. That what he's done for us, that's the power for change. That's the power for ministry. That's what changes our hearts and sends us out to work. And so I am genuinely excited uh, to see what, what God does in the next few weeks as we come together in prayer, in conversation, saying, Lord, what does this look like? Uh, this is a unique time. This is a unique congregation. And this is time for, for farming. It's wartime. It's not time to sit back. And so to, to ask together, Lord, what does this look like? What does this look like? Um, and to be in the midst of that convinced of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ for whatever work that is. It's interesting in Colossians, that's the note Paul opens on. He wants to hammer that home, be fully assured in God's will and the center uh, being Christ. It's also the note he closes this letter on in chapter 4, verse 12, when he talks about Epaphras, who is always struggling on your behalf <clears throat> in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. We need to be assured of God's will centered in Christ, or none of this is going to matter. None of this is going to matter. But that's our pivot foot. That's the power. And we've been given a role to play that out. So let's pray together. Let's pray Paul's prayer from Colossians 1 as we close this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you fill us, your church, with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we might walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of you. May we be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you who have qualified us through Christ to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. May we walk in steadfast maturity through the power of the gospel and bear much fruit for you. In Jesus' name, amen.